SDGI Directors and Dialogue presents Conor Horgan talking about his film 100 Mornings at Electric Picnic in association with Amnesty International. About the film itself then, the, the wide shots, the pauses, the lingering looks and the camera angles all progress this sort of air of um, suspense and isolation and tension. Was it difficult to create those? I know you've got the background in, in photography. Was it difficult to create? Like, how long did you spend on getting the perfect shots that we've seen there in the film? Well, the, f- the film in total took four weeks to shoot. And very, very quickly, I worked it very closely with Susie Lavelle, the, the DP. We spent about 10 uh, days down on the location before anybody got there making a document which which I hope she never puts on the internet, which is the entire film instills with me playing all the parts, you know, <laughs> all this kind of stuff. Um, and having storyboarded the entire film like that, we put that document in our back pocket and then started from scratch once the actors walked in. Mm-hmm. Um and we it was a very definite decision that we would you know right from the first day we were shooting certain scenes and this was not a kind of bravado you know i can shoot an entire scene in one in one take it's just let's see if we can make it work in one take and i would know looking at it if it was going to work or not uh but we'd shoot it in one take from one angle and decide that this was the way to go um one of the great things, I mean, other than it being a relatively fast way of working, is we didn't do any coverage in cer- certain scenes. Like, my favorite scene in the whole film is the breakup scene between Jonathan and Katie. He's having a cuppa, she comes out, he offers her the thing, there's an interaction between them, he kind of puts his hand on her inner thigh, she takes it off, there's a look between them, she walks away. That's the end of that entire relationship. There isn't a word of dialogue yeah. in it, and we shot it in about three or four takes. And the really nice thing, I think, that I don't know, I, I mean, I could claim credit for it in advance, but that would just not be true. But once we started to see it, we realized that in not having a very cutty film, it, it didn't feel so theatrical in some way. It felt more vaguely documentary. And in some way, I think when you're making a film, when you're making a drama, you're just trying to have an event, some kind of an emotional event happen in front of you with, so you can see it with your own eyes. Yeah. And if that event is aided by a cut, it is... It can be diminished. It can be augmented, but it can. You can feel there's a little bit. Well, actually, the second part of that Uwer Mrs. Look actually happened three weeks later. But you know, you know when you're watching something filmed like this that it's actually happening right in front of you. So I think that that helped people feel the world of the film was was more real. The other great thing for the actors as well was you know they knew I wasn't going to you know do his close up, her close up, this close up, the, you know the cutaway. So they all had to be good all the time, <laughs> you know. So that kind of put it up to them as well. Yeah, there was one scene uh, in particular that I think sort of nearly sums up what you're talking about. There is that do you know the scene where uh, they all rush out of the the house. Um, I can't remember exactly now what what was going on, but the the, the camera shot stays there a sheep, at the table. Sheep, sheep, yeah. yeah, yeah, and you you just. You don't need to know what's going on. You know everything. The atmosphere. Oh no! It's it's actually. I think you're talking about the. There's a shot at the end where the two women are preparing meager portions of food on the kitchen table, and we hear a shot in the distance. Yeah. The two boys are off with the the na- at the neighbors, and we hear yeah. a shot, and they run out. And actually, in this in the big cinema, you can see through that little slot. In and this is something that actually came out of that early storyboarding with with Susie. You can you could just see in the distance the figures going this way and the figures going this way and it was kind of like but who's been shot you know like yeah. what's, what's happening and we just held it and held it and held it and it just 
I, I liked it because I'd never actually seen a shot like that. And I thought, well, let's give it a go and see if it works. And yeah. thankfully it did because we didn't have an alternative. So, <laughs> so um, there's a great sense of hope in the film. Is be- there? Be- because, really? because it keeps getting taken <laughs> away so from them. This. You know, every time, every time something hopeful might happen, for the example, the electricity coming on, and then it's just taken away from them. So th- I think that there is a great sense of, of hope uh, in, in the film. Brings me on to... W- we never actually fully are, are let into what actually caused them to be there, what, what, what happened to the mm-hmm. world. That was deliberate, or w- was it Was it not? No, we filmed all the special effects and everything. I tried. I didn't <laughs> like them. <laughs> cut them out, you know. So. Yeah, you don't um, go in for 3D, you know. Yeah, no, it, yeah, obviously it was deliberate. Um, in some ways, you know, when I was looking at possible ways in which society could break down, there is no shortage of plausible ways in which society can break down, you know. Uh, any of these other, or most of the other films I've seen in the same area, you kind of, or certainly I think a lot of people react like I do, which is you spend the first half an hour of the film in an internal argument with the premise of how it might come to be, you know, arguing with the director or the writer and saying, well, would would it be so quick and would it be this and what about that and what about the other and all these unanswered questions need to be answered and it just takes up a vast amount of time and explanation and I thought, look, it's happened. Everybody in the world knows it's happened in in the world of the film knows that it happened. That's enough. If you really want to have an idea of what might cause it, read the papers you know there's there's enough stuff out there but you know the in a way the ways it's not about what caused it it's about the reaction to it and the lack of preparedness for it uh it's about how any of us might react if we're in that situation where you know like if you look at kind of post-apocalyptic websites in america and there's several million of them um, you'll find, you know, a lot of Americans, especially the younger ones, have this kind of can-do attitude, which is, I'm going to get me some guns and some food and head for the hills. Well, this film is a direct repast to that, saying, if you get yourself some guns and some food and head for the hills, this is what you're going to end up with. This is your life. Is this what you really want? Well, I, I, I was actually I was speaking to you earlier on, and I thought to myself, that this is something that I would really like without, you know, the people shooting at me and, and things like that. It's a beautiful well, setting. Well, if the economy keeps going like this, anybody can afford a cottage <laughs> in Wickler in yeah. a couple of years' time. So, um, specifically then, um, for yourself as the writer, do you know then what happened? And can you tell us? Yes and yes. <laughs> would you tell us? Look, if I was going to tell you, I would be in the film. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. All right, so um, one of the very best Irish feature films in the last decade. How did that make you feel? Chuffed. <laughs> I mean, to be the, not only the director but the writer of, of such an achievement, I mean, you are, are you completely happy with everything the way it is and would you change anything? No, I see this as a, a, the pinnacle of uh, cinematic perfection. I wouldn't change it. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> No, I mean, I, I, was, I was talking to my friend earlier and just saying, you know, the first time I saw this was with an audience was an excruciating um, experience because not only was I looking at the things up on, on the screen that could have been better, I was remembering all the things that we shot that didn't end up there or the things that, you know, just never happened the way they should have and all this kind of stuff. Nobody else knows any of this kind of yeah. stuff, you know. I then had this very lucky experience. The first time we showed it in America at the Slamdance Film Festival, you know, I vowed after the first screening, I am never watching this with an audience ever again. That was awful, you know. And I went into the, the screening as I've done at any kind of festival and any kind of thing around the world you go in you make sure it's kind of 
cropped properly, it's in the right aspect ratio, it's loud enough, you know, all these kind of things, and then you leave. And in America, I stayed, and I, this kind of weird thing came over me, and I just started to experience the film as though I had nothing to do with it. You know, there was a part of me that just became disassociated, and I was with the audience and feeling their responses and being su- surprised when they were surprised and moved and, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And it was that was a wonderful, wonderful experience of seeing the film with new eyes and that you know after that I thought well I didn't think it was a pinnacle of cinematic accent or you know Come perfection <laughs> but I thought you know what it works you know I need never see it again and yeah. I haven't actually since then <laughs> and uh, the, 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 the script itself there, w- there are so many things not said uh, as, as you said and I think that, that it's right for the style of the film um, but w- was your script um, heavier you know did you have yeah, we shot. We probably shot another twenty minutes of scenes, mm. and myself and Frank, the editor, also because the way we shot, we you know, if something didn't work, we knew this all the way through. If it didn't work, you couldn't. There was very little cutting. Some of them we had options, but uh, I could move stuff around quite a bit, and I reordered the script quite a bit. Like in the first rough cut of the of the film, the cops arrived after about twenty three minutes. In the actual film, the cops arrive at sixteen minutes. Mm-hmm. Because that's really when it starts. That's really when you get a start to get a sense of just how much this has affected the wider world. Um, but well, it was a question about how much I left out. Well, I mean, did you change anything, or or did you get to the the, the day of the shooting and go? Do you know what? We don't need that. I did. I, I wanted to make a film with as one of the tasks I set myself was to make a film with as little dialogue as possible. And I cut and cut and cut dialogue. And actually, you know, the the normal rule rule of thumb is one page of dialogue or one page of screenplay for one minute of film. So mm-hmm. a film this long would be 83, 85 pages. The actual uh, length of the printed script is 60, 62 pages because this is just a lot of like one or two lines of action, which actually takes up two or three minutes on the screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when we got to rehearsals and, you know, we'd rehearse one of these scenes in this kind of, you know, what making it work in, in a one-shot wonder kind of way and I'd hear a line or two of dialogues, uh, dialogue and I just know this is going to end up on the, on the cutting room floor don't even say it we yeah. just take it out and the actors would come, would come to me and say this is a more economical way of saying what this line is trying to say and I'd say great let's, let's do that instead yeah. you know? so it's just paring down paring down paring down all, all the way and it, in a way it kind of gives I think or my interpretation of the film you know what's going on for the characters is a kind of you know, there's because of some of the conflict in the house, people are guarded anyway. But there's also this kind of thing of you know, we're I'm almost conserving energy. You know, as the resources fade, as there isn't enough food, I'm saying as little as I need to say. You know, nobody's going to just waffle in this film because you know everybody's just kind of trying to keep on, keep hold of as much energy, as much resources as they can. Yeah. Um. So then we will move on. Just, may I just say? Yeah. All my answers won't be this long, okay? I'll tend to start long and oh, no, then get shorter do. at the end. You know, so. Um, so, is there any questions then for, uh, from anyone in the audience? Put up your hand there and I'll try and get to you with this mic. Oh. <laughs> Go ahead. Which of the characters in the film is most like you? <laughs> Thank you, Aoife. <laughs> um... Do I have to be answer that honestly? I probably do. I mean, I could do the standard thing, and the standard thing is true, uh, which is 
uh, oh, but they're all me. Because, of course, they are all me. Because when you're writing these things, you put yourself into the situation. And what I really wanted, you know, what I experienced when I was writing it is what would it be like for me with this attitude being in this situation? And in some way, the two male characters, Jonathan and Mark, are very much two aspects of me. And the conflict between them, the kind of, you know, Jonathan as being, you know, realist to the point of pessimism and Mark being optimist to the point of delusion at times you know I have both of that in me and both of those things fight within me at different points in my life uh, but if I had the gun held to my head that you've just pointed up to my head um, I would have to say Jonathan really you know well no but yes of course it's the women as well you know but you know they also reflect other significant women in my life you know so <laughs> Any other question there? Good question. Thank you. I've never been asked that before. <laughs> Anyone else then? Yes. Yeah, um, that was, a, again, a really deliberate thing. I mean, an earlier, in an earlier version of the screenplay, uh, you know, you're always playing with titles. And I actually came up with 100 Mornings really early. And then, you know, you think, the great title, I love it. Everybody says, the great title. And then as you get used to it, even before you make the film, you get bored with it. And you think, oh, it's a terrible title. We have to find a better one quickly, you know. And one of the alternative titles was A World Without Music, which obviously is a terrible title. but um, <laughs> But it kind of pinpointed something about the world because people, you know, when you think about this kind of breakdown of society and we think, you know, and I'd start off thinking, well, I live in a world where I need electricity to look at my photographs, you know, which is a, a relatively new thing. Um, you know, and you think if society breaks down like this, you're going to miss, you know, food, water, shelter and security and all this kind of stuff. And But what, what I would really miss is difficult, complex, glorious music, you know, Kate Bush, Mozart, any of the above, Talk Talk, any, any of these things, you know, sitting around a campfire with a battered acoustic just doesn't do it for me, you know, um, that kind of, the kind of society that can support that kind of sophisticated level of art or culture or expression is a wonderful thing to be a part of and to be to be go to something as basic as that and to lose the connection with something like that and in some ways that is very much the key, the the key into Hannah's character is music uh, and the fact that you know when the electricity comes back on she goes directly to you know this is the one thing that you know that in that way she's like me <laughs> you know uh, you know goes goes straight to the music um uh, but we did, you know. So initially, I was, and the other thing is that I just didn't. I wanted to have this ve this kind of documentary type effect on people, and to have any kind of sweeping strings behind any dialogue heavy or any kind of dialogue dramatic scenes. I just didn't want to go there. I wanted to get pair it back and keep it plain, and you know, I didn't, honestly, in all honesty, know if it was going to work. But it, I think it did, you know. So thank God for that. <laughs> Thanks for your question. The um, the the strings and the piano, the the, the composer. The, I mean, they're all very on their own, very lonely, and and isolated by themselves. You know, so that was obviously a, a choice then as well. Um, how closely then did you work with? The, I mean, I know you work closely because you're working together, but uh, with the composer then to come up with that sound to to this wilderness and isolation. 
Well, I knew I knew Chris because he'd scored a, a short that I was in, and and he'd done a really nice job on that. And he, I sent him a rough cut of the film, and he sent me back just this little kind of single piano thing, almost like a two or three keys, and that got him the gig instantly. And then we built from then on. And I personally like I make films, and people think this is an amazing magical thing. Uh, from my perspective, it's just a lot of you know. There's management and there's a bit of, you know creativity and there's this and that and the other. But it's all achievable. But I, when I approach a musician, I'm just in awe. I mean, how do they do that? Like there was no music and now there's music. You know, like it's just where did it come from? You know. And he thinks about film in exactly the same way. He's like to him, just making music is incredibly mundane. It's what he does nine to five all week long. You know. So for me, that is you know we did have the little bit of music in the film at, at the titles. Uh, and then there are two kind of montages in the, in the film that have very, very minimal music, but with no music over dramatic scenes. And for me, kind of creating or working with him and saying, you know, maybe if we uh, tried something a bit like this and then he does it and it works, is actually, in, in some way, because it's such a mystery to me, it's more thrilling than saying something to an actor and saying that work, you know? So, because, you know, you know when it doesn't work, and then when it does work, you go, great, move on, let's do the next thing. Yeah. Uh, any other questions there from the floor? One more. <laughs> um, my next film is an odd, an odd little science fiction love story about a scientist. <laughs> um, is this the the underwater? No, no, that's been made already. Right. So, yeah, no, that was uh, a man dancing underwater with his seventy-six-year-old mother. Wow. Um, which was actually written and choreographed by the man and his seventy-six-year-old mother. The man being David Bolger is one of our great kind of modern dance choreographers, mm-hmm. and it was in the swimming pool, the Marion College swimming pool, where his mum, who's a swimming coach, had taught him to swim. So, uh, yeah, it's online. It's called Deep End Dance, and it's tonally quite different from this. You might enjoy it. So. <laughs> Uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, one more time, could you please give it up for uh, the director of the film, Connor Horgan? Thank you for listening to SDGI Directors and Dialogue. We would like to thank our sponsors, the Irish Film Board and the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland. For more information on the Screen Directors Guild of Ireland, visit us at www.sdgi.com. That I eat.